0: Well, good morning. morning. There we go. (laughs) And happy Father's Day. I hope y'all are having a, uh, most of you dads are having a good Father's Day or have a lot uh, lined up in front of you. Um, I know there's a couple of y'all that I connected with that uh, I myself, even first service, I did a worse job at this. I did a little better second service, but there were several people who came up and were like, Happy Father's Day. And I was like, Oh yeah, today's Father's Day. And kind of took me aback, Um, namely because uh, I'm flying solo for Father's Day today. Uh, My kids have been gone all week and so has my wife. Uh, And I'm the type that some of y'all may relate, um, if, if I wasn't Married, I wouldn't know my own birthday. Like, it would just fly by me, right? So my wife is normally the one to help me remember all that, and uh, she's not here. So it's kind of this whole Father's Day snuck, snuck up on me. Um, but but I'm glad. I'm glad for her. I'm glad she got some uh, time away. She actually went um, uh, to visit a new uh, godchild of ours, a godbaby that was born um, in Michigan. And, uh, and my kids uh, then got to go with our parents. Both our parents still go to the same church that, that my wife and I grew up at. And this was their VBS week. So they got to do VBS week with grandparents and uh, Jill got to go away and uh, have some sweet snuggle times with a little baby girl. Um, and so it's been, they've, they've had a fantastic time. Um, it is kind of a funny thing in, in our story. Um, before we even had our own kids, uh, this particular couple, Rim and Val, uh, they were missionaries in Beirut, Lebanon. And so uh, they kind of approached us and said, you know, god forbid but if anything would happen to us in this dangerous area would you would you be guardians of our kids would you take our kids and so um, or kid at the time and uh, and so we said yes and that was fine and And then, uh, actually, a couple months after that, shortly after that, another couple came to us and asked us uh, the same thing. And so we said, sure, yes, that's fine. Uh, And then we started having babies, and they kept having babies. And then another, a third couple came to us and said, hey, would you mind watching our kids if something ever happened? And we said, okay, yes, but we're going to have to clause this at this point. None of y'all are going to be able to get on a flight together or go and think like y'all don't know all each other but y'all can't meet and can't go hang out because if something happens to us, Jill and I would end up with 18 kids. At this point, and I don't know what would happen uh, with that. Uh, I'm sure Lord would provide, but um, but all the same, uh, Jill's had a great time, and we'll we'll get to reconnect uh, and see each other again tonight and celebrate uh, just being home together for Father's Day. So that'll be fun. Um, As we go into our passage, Chris last week asked me to kind of do a a broad oversweep for us uh, to remind us again where this falls, because since we've been in John so long, uh, and since we take kind of smaller sections of it, sometimes we can get caught up in kind of the verse-to-verse moment of it, and we forget where we fall in the overall uh, narrative, the overall purpose that he's trying to accomplish with us. So that's what I wanted to start with before we get to the passage that we're going to consider, As uh, I want to kind of remind ourselves of what John is trying to accomplish in this book, uh, and specifically how he presents the book and where we fall in that story so that we can understand the context and the significance of Jesus' words. Um, John makes it abundantly clear for us, the purpose. He actually gives us a purpose statement. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, and remember, if you've, if you've been with us long, when we revisit this, we boil it down to three words to help us remember it, and they're the ones that are bolded. He says, now Jesus, that's our first word, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the, this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are the three words that we can remember John's whole purpose of his gospel by, is he's wanting to present Jesus, he's wanting to give a witness or a testimony of Jesus, and he wants then to do so, so that we have a response, and our response is then belief, And then when we have belief, we will inherit life. This is the whole purpose. That we see Jesus rightly for who he is. Thus, we put faith in him uh, rightly as a response. And thus, we receive the right life that he promises. So this is what he's trying to accomplish in it. And how John goes about doing this is he, he does kind of some series of sevens that he weaves as this theme. The first series of sevens is he, he provides seven miracles, or what he refers to here as signs. He calls them signs. Seven signs that basically testify. It's Jesus testifying to about his own divinity, that he is God, uh, by performing these miracles. Uh, we've run into them all across the book. And actually, in the first 11 chapters, what's known as the uh, public ministry of Jesus... And when Jesus is going around publicly to everybody, he fulfills all of these seven miracles. And so we've seen them. We've seen uh, the, we've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him feed the crowds. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him in his three healings where he's healed the official son, uh, the man at the pool. Uh, and then he return, returns sight to the blind. And then we see it all kind of Climax hit it to a point that Jesus' ultimate sign or miracle is that he has the power over life and he restores life to Lazarus. And so we see John's pointing to all of these signs that Jesus has done. And woven into them, he throws in these teachings. So it's not only that Jesus displays these signs that he is divine, he claims with his words divinity. And that's where we get these seven I am statements. Uh, Of it, we've actually covered We've covered six already. Five of them are woven into the public ministry um, where he says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. And then at the close of the public ministry, the whole time Jesus has been saying, right? It's not my time. It's not my time. Now is not the hour that is appointed for me. And what he's doing in that is he's essentially saying, it's not my time for death yet. And then we had a big turn where Jesus says finally it is my time. And then what happens is in 12 through 17 Jesus moves after announcing it's his time to move towards death, the cross. That's going to be what 18 through the end of the book is going to be is the passion ministry, him going to the cross and resurrection. But right after he finishes his public ministry, he says it's my time, but before we get to the cross, he has a private ministry where he goes into the lives of his disciples. And he wants to impart on them some special things that they need to know so that they'll understand this. Um, This is where he, a couple weeks ago, we started this chapter by talking about the I am statement where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Next week, we'll we'll finish our final I am statement in chapter 15 when uh, Dr. Bob Livesey will be um, preaching over what it is when he claims to be the vine. But what what Jesus is doing here in this private ministry is he's gearing up the disciples, right? It's kind of the, the, the big moment. I'm going to my death, so this is what is really important, right? It's what we would all do if we knew our imminent death. Well, what are we gonna do? We're gonna make sure those that are around us know exactly what is the most important thing for them to know. And that's what Jesus is doing here, is he's taking this time to make sure his disciples know some truth about him. And when he does it, he does so in a way that only our God and Savior could. He gives them comfort. In a time that would be more, uh, most appropriate for the man who is going to his own death to seek the comfort of those who are around him. No, he doesn't seek comfort. Instead, he gives comfort. And in the establishment of comfort, one of the things we ran into that Chris had already uh, talked about was this giving of a helper, a paraclete, one who comes alongside. And he was gonna be the giver of comfort. And now, when the disciples still don't get this idea, they're still not getting what's going on Jesus understands this, and instead of giving up on them, he continues to give gifts to them. And that's the passage we're going to consider, is because Jesus is going to re-announce the, the promise of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to announce three gifts in particular that we're going to focus on, of what he is continuing to give to his disciples instead of giving up on their lack of understanding So with that in mind to uh, uh, kind of maybe reawaken our bodies again and rejuvenate on this dreary, rainy day, uh, I'm gonna ask you to stand uh, as we read God's word together or as I read God's word over y'all together. It says in verse 25 of John chapter 14, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with, with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me said, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, that you may believe I will, no longer, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let's go from here. Here are the very words of the Lord. You all may be seated. So what Jesus is doing here is he's setting the stage. He's setting the stage again for this whole ending of his conversation with, with them in this chapter. He's, he's making a proclamation again in 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He's referring back to all this teaching that he's done so far in this private ministry. He's saying, I'm teaching you these things while I'm still with you. And in essence, he's implying there will be a time I'm not gonna be with you. So while I am, these are the things that I want you to know. The question of the disciples, obviously, would be, well, what would we do without you? Um, But Jesus preemptively knows that and and answers them uh, in 26, because before they get a chance to ask, he says, the helper, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus, this entire time, has been making uh, revelations. He's been teaching new things to them, and he's been doing so um, while abiding with them, next to them. But now he's saying, I'm not going to abide with you in the same way, and so instead I'm going to send another, a helper. This is, this is what Chris talks about again, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside This is the one in in verse 16 is described as uh, one who is marked by the characteristics of righteousness and of truth. That this comforter, this helper is now coming back in here essentially uh, so that now he can make them understand all things. Jesus taught with them and now he's saying one will come in you who will make all this understood. And so this is the great promise that he's giving is when these disciples are not getting it yet, he's saying, don't worry, guys. I know you don't get it. I know you don't understand, but you will. One day you will, and I'll make sure of that. I'll send a helper. And not only just this helper, but there's a couple other clauses here. We know that this helper, this spirit, is sent by the Father. He's sent by the Father, but at the same time, he's also sent in Jesus' name. This is emissary language. He is an emissary for Jesus. Essentially, everything that the, uh, that the Holy Spirit will do, will do in accordance to the will of the Son, of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is to do the will of Jesus. This is a great Trinitary play that we're going to see here. Because Jesus, the entire thing, he's abundantly made clear. Why is he here? Not for his will to be done, but for the Father's will. And so essentially what John's trying to paint for us is that that Jesus with his disciples is saying, don't worry, I won't be here with you in the same way, about to go from here, but I'm going to send you one who will be with you. And primarily what he is going to do is he is going to do everything that I have said. And just like I have done everything that the Father has said. So in essence, the Spirit is also doing what the Father's will. This is how it's all uh, mixed together. So what is this Spirit's role? Um, What is this great helper's role in this passage? How will he do the will of the Father? Well, he accomplishes two things. Two things are presented by here from Jesus. Uh, The first thing is that uh, it says that the uh, Spirit's role is to teach you all things. That's the first thing, to teach you all things. And the second thing is to bring to mind all that I have said. That's the two purposes, is to teach and to bring to mind. Basically, I'm going to remind you of everything that Jesus has said, and this time I'm going to make you understand it. I'm going to teach it to you. Literally, the Greek word here, to teach, means uh, to cause to learn. It's a causing to learn. He's going to be the one who causes them to learn it. In the same way that the literal translation of what we have to remember is that he's going to cause to remember Ultimately, uh, the Holy Spirit will come for his disciples uh, to cause them to remember and to cause them to understand. These are the two roles that the Spirit has. And this, in essence, is what John's doing in his book. Um, The Holy Spirit has reminded him of Jesus' teaching. He's given him understanding of Jesus' teaching. And now John is writing it down. He's recording it for us. We call this process inspiration. Inspiration. This is a mark of the inspiration of the New Testament, that this wasn't written just by men, but this is divinely given to us. Now, this is one of the great proofs or reliable internal proofs or claiming of the reliability uh, of the New Testament. We've already run in and talked about the reliability of the New Testament back, if you remember, when we talked about John chapter 5 or when we got to John chapter 8. But the time that we were spending there, we talked a lot about external proofs. All the documents that we have, all the things that in in textual criticism prove that uh, this is a reliable document we're working with in the New Testament, something we can be counted on. But this is one of the great internal proofs. This is Jesus making a promise through the Holy Spirit that this is what will be given to the disciples, that they will be given a remembrance of everything that he has taught and they will give an understanding. And this is what John's doing. He's writing it down. This is a similar uh, statement to what uh, Paul says to Timothy in his second letter when he writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There, the Apostle Paul was internally testifying to the reliability of the Old Testament. And here, what Jesus is doing is he is promising the reliability of the New Testament. It's this immense gift that we are given God's word. That's why when when we close our time, uh, whenever I close our time of reading it all together, I say, hear the very words of God um, because that's what's recorded here because that is what is promised here because that is what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's written by men, but it was inspired by the Spirit. These are divine words. Now, I will say this was a specific promise to them. This was a specific promise to them. It's not that we also have the same Holy Spirit so um, we can now receive... Uh, you know, inspiration and we can write our own Gospels and continue to add and add and add and add on to Scripture, right? I'm not going to go out and I'm not going to buy the, the Gospel of Alan that he puts out, right? Well, actually, I take that back. That would be fascinating. I am going to buy the Gospel of Alan. I'm just not going to treat it as God's Word. I'm not going to treat it as authoritative and all the same. Um, it isn't that we just get to add on to Scripture. That that the scripture has completed and has has closed. Um, But what it is, is that the teaching ministry of the Spirit is still applicable to us. So in the same way that the teaching ministry, that he was causing them to learn and that he was bringing them understanding, imparting God's words, that same Spirit is continuing that work in us today. We still are in the same way dependent on his illumination of his word to our application in our lives. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 2. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand these the, the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. The spirit of truth gives understanding freely from God. You know, being being here at the church and working for the church and meeting a lot of y'all and a lot of y'all coming in new, um, there's a phrase at times that like, I, under, I always understand when it's said, what they mean, um, but I always kind of also at the same time cringe of like, that's not really what you mean. Um, because a lot of times I'll meet new people and I'll, and I'll say, yeah, it's so great to, to have you here. Um, you know, just, I'm glad you're here. Well, just out of curiosity, what, what's drawn you here, what's done? And, and some version of this gets told frequently. Um, when they say something like, uh, oh, I just absolutely love pastor Chris's teaching Uh, when Chris teaches the Bible I uh, he makes me understand it in ways that I never did before and again I always get that I get the sentiment Chris is a really good teacher it's one of the reasons I'm here he's a great teacher in it but it's erroneous Chris isn't making you understand scripture no the Holy Spirit's doing that that's the Holy Spirit's role in this you don't need a pastor up here. You don't me need me up here. You don't need a podcast, or you don't need some latest Christian living book. What you need is the Holy Spirit. These are the very words of God, and he will bring illumination to his words. prophet Isaiah said his words go out, and they will not return void. They will accomplish the work that they are intended to do. And so why I say all of this is because we can kind of have this side, uh, two points of application that re- really was helpful for me to reflect on this week uh, in preparation. Um, one, in considering that these are the very words of God given to me and that the same spirit who inspired these is is here in my life uh, promising an inspiration to me as I seek his words from God. This is an amazing book, unlike no other book. And this, this was what I really challenged myself with this week is do I really think and believe, do I act like this is an amazing book? Is this christ writing his own story for me to consume is this god's word spoken into my life is this this the spirit who wants me to come to a place of truth and understanding i'd say as a as a maybe you can join me along this week in struggling with what does it look like to, to look into this book and be amazed the second thing that, uh, that came to me this week from the idea of looking at God's word given to us was not just the concept of being amazed, but actually was the concept of being expectant. Because like I already quoted Isaiah, we know that his word goes out and it doesn't go come back void. And so I can actually go to scripture expectant of the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth that I need to know that is right. This is, this is why Paul says this, we're not being taught by human wisdom. This is divine wisdom for us. So I get to go expectantly for that, to receive that. This is why when the Apostle Paul continues to write to the Corinthians, he concludes, we have the mind of Christ. This is what is given. And so that was largely my prayer this morning, was that as we finish this passage, that we may go into it with uh, amazement and expectancy to see what God is continuing to, above and beyond, give to his followers. And in this last little section here, I mean, again, it's amazing. I know I've already stated it once, but I want to restate it. In the the last hours before Jesus goes to his death, he's seeking to give to his disciples. I mean, at any time that we would expect expect Jesus not to have to give something, right? He's about to give everything. He's gonna give his life, his all. He's gonna give it all. And what does he do right before that? Well, he continues to give. More and more does Jesus gives. This is the expressant worth of our Savior, that he is a limitless giver. I wrote it like this for myself. When Jesus is about to face the cruelest and most painful, tortuous death of the age on a cross, where his life is about to be taken, he gives. Specifically, we see him giving peace, giving joy, and giving faith. Those are the three concepts that we wanna look at is we wanna look at at the moment that he is going to his death, giving it is all. He stops and in a moment promises the helper to his disciples and says, with the coming of the helper, in verse 27, I will give you peace. Verse 28, we will find a gift of joy that is available. And then finally in 29, we'll see faith, peace, joy, and faith. Now in these next five verses, it's kind of interesting because uh, in a snapshot here, John presents Jesus' words, when Jesus is communicating this, he's fulfilling his whole purpose. Remember the whole purpose of the book was to see Jesus, to respond in belief, and to receive life, right? Well, that's exactly what happens here. But he does so in an interesting way. He actually, instead of starting with the foundation of Jesus and building upon that, he actually starts with the bigger claims. Jesus' words um, begin with, a, with, a, with an expectant truth that he presents, and then he moves his way down to the foundation. So it's kind of a backwards way of building. Instead of starting with the uh, foundation and building up, he starts with the up and builds down to the foundational truth. And so, what I want to do is, I want to look at those three gifts, but I want to do it in such a way that we take it backwards. Instead of walking through uh, the, the normal verse by verse, I want to actually jump to the end, and let us walk, we start with the foundation, namely, it's going to be Jesus' death on a cross. When you start with the foundation, and then we're going to work our way back and watch how John accomplishes his purpose through Jesus' words. So look down at verse 30. It says, "I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father." Rise, let's go from here. Jesus is speaking with a, a, an explicit purpose here. He's explaining a vital point about his death. Um, this is similar language. We've run into this already in John and John 13, when Jesus is saying to his disciples, uh, "I have a new commandment for you, right? Um, this is where Peter messes up and doesn't understand that Jesus is going somewhere where he's not going. And because he says this, he says, "Little children, yet a little while I am with you." It's a very similar language. This is death language. Jesus is talking about why he won't be with him is because he's going to his death. Here he's saying why I'm no longer gonna be talking with you is because I will be dead soon. So this is death language here. And more interestingly, he he speaks to who is coming for his death. Who is the one that is coming for Jesus' death? Here it says it as the ruler of this world is coming. He's speaking of Satan. Satan is coming for Jesus' death. Now, this is, we don't want to miss it. This is a statement of how Jesus dies. This is not a statement of why Jesus dies. Yes, it is through Satan coming for him, but it is not because of Satan coming for him. I want to make it clear, because keep looking. Why does Jesus go to the cross? Well, he goes because of obedience to the Father, He says this, he says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. What a powerful statement. He has no claim on me. Literally, the words here means he has nothing in me. This is a translation of a Hebrew idiom uh, that means he has no legal standing. Satan has no legal standing in court against Jesus. He has no authority over Jesus. Jesus. So why does Jesus go to the cross? He goes out of obedience to the Father. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. One of the authors that I was reading put it like this. This, The cross is not some demonic coercion, rather a divine compliance. This is key. Evil is not at play here. Evil is not in control. Satan is not in control. Satan is a pawn. He's a tool. He's a patsy. Jesus uses him, but it's Jesus has the authority to lay down my life. I lay down my life, and I am the one who can take it back up. This is Jesus' authority. Yeah, he uses Satan in this, but he doesn't. It's not because Satan has won some great victory over Jesus and forced Jesus to his death. No, we've seen time and time again in this gospel, Jesus is the one with the authority, and Jesus is marching himself to the cross. And this time we know it is because of love of the Father. Essentially, Jesus is saying to Satan, you're just a lackey getting me to where I need to go. So if evil is not at play, then what is at play? If evil is not the great work, uh, what is the great work that is accomplished here? And it's love in this passage. Love is at work, verse 31 again. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is the deepest roots of our salvation that the love of the son for the father and the love of the father for the son is why Jesus goes to the cross to die for our sins. I mean, what kind of God is this? This is where, again, one of those great assuredness I have of the Christian faith because I know if I was writing this book, if I was making up this whole Christian thing or if any of y'all would, I wouldn't write it like this. I mean, look at all of the other world religions. How many other world religions are there that the prime purpose of the person is to, is to prop themselves up or to go into to earn their way into favor with God? And what God's doing here is he's saying, no, 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 out of my own love for the son and out of his love for me, it is a love so great that I'm sharing it with you. Well, you were hopeless in your sin, not able to do anything on your own, I will take care of the price you can't pay. This is the great work, that the love of the Father and the Father's love for the Son sets the foundation for the cross. Satan's not sovereign. Satan isn't sovereign. Jesus is the one clearly presented here as sovereign, and it's proved through this obedience to the Father, displaying true love of the Father, and essentially this is where we see that when God is love, we know that Jesus is love. This is the great message to us. So once again, John has showed us who Jesus is, right? That was point number one of our purpose. Jesus, seeing Jesus. Particularly, we're seeing Jesus as love. Love for the Father, Father's love for him. So what's our next point in our statement, right? What do you respond to Jesus with? You respond to belief. And that's exactly what happens in verse 29. Look down. And now that I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe in essence he's saying i'm the one in charge i'm the one walking towards my own death and i'm doing so so that i can demonstrate the love of the father and that i can extend through the cross your ability to love me in return this is why john later writes in his letters uh, that we first we don't firstly love we love because christ because god first loved us because that he's the one making this work In the same way that he is the one with only the power uh, to go to the cross and to receive uh, life, he's the only one who's able to give the power of belief in him. So not only do I wanna give you love, I wanna give you the opportunity for you to love me back and that's putting faith in me. John speaks of belief time and time again. I was curious, so I, I just looked it up. This is all the references from John on belief. He's saying, I mean, essentially John's like, how can you miss this? How can you rightly look at Jesus' love and not respond to this? This seems to be the only natural inclination that John has. So the question is, will you believe? Will you accept the love that is given to you freely? Can you confess your sins, pronounce him as Lord, and accept the love of Christ, the gift of the cross? So again, what happens to uh, those who believe in our purpose statement from John? We see Jesus, we respond in belief, and then we gain life. And then how John kind of ties in this concept of life is he actually mirrors two concepts that are really related here. Um, and, and that is of what we've already said. That is the giving of joy and that is the giving of peace. Let's look down first at joy. Backing up again because we're working backwards. Verse 28, you've heard me say to you that I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. As a statement, it would read like this. Have joy because I am going to my Father. This is the right response of Jesus returning to his Father. That is, he is, with the expectation of returning back to his Father, Jesus is experiencing joy. And what Jesus is saying here is that if we believe, if we rightly love him, then it would be right for us to partake in his same joy. He's saying being, I mean, be happy for me, guys. Have joy. I'm going back to the Father. I think if we love Jesus truly, what he's saying here is if we put our faith in him, then we are supposed to be filled with his joy that he returns to the Father. I think this is highlighted by the phrase at the end, and it says, for the father is greater than I. Now, I won't go too much into this because historically this verse has had in Christian history a, a wide variety of controversy around it. Um, you know, even as far back as um, the Arians and, and even now as modern, as, um, as the Jehovah Witnesses. They want, to, they want to minimize, they want to take the statement and minimize Jesus's divinity and say he's just man and God and the Spirit are divine. But no, that we, we, we can't come to that conclusion. We've seen it time and time again. These are the miracles he's doing. These are the statements he's making. He's not giving us that option. No, he is fully God and fully man. But I think in that point of becoming man, known as the incarnation, that's what he's really referencing here. Because we know in Philippians that Paul says that Jesus humbled himself taking the very form of man. Essentially, Jesus exchanged heavenly glory with God to come down on to earth to live as a man. Yes, still divine, but as a man, not in his heavenly glory. Well, the Father's still in his heavenly glory. So what Jesus is excited about is he's getting to go back to his heavenly glory. He's getting to go back to glory with the Father like he had before the incarnation. And this fills him with joy. One of the, uh, the scholars that I was reading, a guy named Tom Constable, said it uh, much better than myself, so I'll just quote him. I put it on the screen. It says, Jesus has laid his heavenly glory aside in the incarnation, but the Father has not done so and consequently enjoyed greater glory than the Son during Jesus' earthly ministry. However, now Jesus was about to return to the Father and to the greater glory that he would again share with the Father. This is what brings him great joy. There's something just innately joyous about a child, a son returning to his father. I mean, we get this, right? Especially all you fathers on Father's Day and you think about it. I mean, I get it almost every time that I drive home from work. The joy of my wife comes in her face as she watches my two girls, when I pull open and open the garage door, run out to meet me with joy, right? That brings her joy. There's something joyous about kids being reunited with their fathers, right? Right? Actually, it's it's so much so, now it's a reality in our lives that I've had to reprogram myself. Because guys, you'll understand, some of y'all understand this mindset is before I had kids, I always, when I'd be driving down my drive, I'd be pressing my uh, garage door opener because I was always curious how far away I could make it work, right? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, some of y'all know. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And I would do that. Well, now that I have kids, I have to retrain. I can't do that anymore. Because what I would do is I would press that button when I'm still down in the road. And the kids are running out of the garage. They hear the garage door. And the girls come running out. And now they're standing in the driveway. And so I'm having to say, yes, I'm glad to see you too. I'm home. I love you. But like, get out of the way. I don't want to run you over. Uh, and so now I've retrained myself. I now have to pull into my drive, park, and then press the button. Because then they'll come out because there's something joyous about being reunited with the Father. We get this in this picture. My girls understand this innately. My wife rejoices in this when it happens. And this is ultimately what Jesus is doing. Jesus' glorification back with the heavenly Father is a cause for joy. It's what Christ experienced, and it's what Christ is offering his disciples and us. And really what happens in this is we know that it comes, this is where it ties into where joy and peace meet in this passage is because part of why he can have right joy with being reunited with the father is because he can also have peace standing before the father. He, Satan has no claim on him. He can stand in right relationship with the father at peace. I'll continue my illustration a little bit more because it's not every time that both my girls run out to meet me in the car. Sometimes I pull in and I open the garage and only one of them comes out. Now, normally means one of two things. One, it's either hair day, is doing their hair, they're strapped to a chair, they can't get out. Uh, and so, but I know, normally know that. I know when it's hair day, so I know that's why they're not out there. But there's times that it's not hair day and only one's coming out joyfully and the other one's not. And what do I know has happened? I go inside and what do I find? I find that one of them has disobeyed mommy, right? And she knows what daddy's prerogative is that mommy is to be obeyed. And what she's experiencing is she's not experiencing peace. She is uncertain of her standing. So she doesn't run out with joy. And so, what do I do as the father? Well, then I do what fathers do. I have to go in and I have to be the peacemaker. I have to restore peace back to her and know that this relationship is still there for her to have. But her peace comes, and her joy comes from a right standing. In the same way that this is what Jesus offers to us in verse 27, peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He is giving us a peace. He is giving us an ability of a right standing with the Father, one that should fill us with joy and one that fills us with this otherworldly peace. Paul puts it in Philippians, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Jesus isn't creating peace for us. What he's doing is he is sharing his peace with us. He is sharing his joy with us because he took the work to love the Father and go to the cross so that we may have faith in him. Jesus does all the work at the cross. Jesus is the one who gives us the opportunity of faith. Jesus is the one who restores us to a life that it can be marked with peace and a life that can be marked with joy. This is what we see from the great time of God's very words to us this morning. And so it is our prayer that the Holy Spirit will illuminate these very words and comfort you